Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Man, probably saying woo because you don't have to preach after that whole mess right there. That is the problem, right, when, when you have a, a passage of Scripture like this one that is so familiar to so many in the church. It's a real problem because some of you have said, oh, I got this one. I'm going to go ahead and set my fantasy line up right now. And, and the problem is, the problem is, I think there is a lot of misinformation in this interpretation of the parable. In fact, I would submit to you that in the book of Matthew itself, you don't even have to go beyond the book of Matthew, you can find some language that presents Jesus as having a posture that is in direct contradiction with the posture of the wealthy person who let go of the five talents, the two talents, and the one talent. Jesus is a friend of those in poverty, right? And all God's people said, Yeah, so if you think that the wealthy person is somehow supposed to be Jesus, then you hear Jesus say at the end, take what the poor person has and give it to the rich person. It's not Jesus. In fact, we have to be really careful, careful. Pardon me, I'm going to put on the professor hat here for a little bit. I, I love teaching Bible. To, uh, I, when I get a chance to teach Bible at the college, it's to gen ed students who walk in, many of them with their dukes up because they already know what they want to know about scripture and you aren't really allowed to tell them something other than what they know. Please don't be those people. Amen. I like your amens today. Because here's the thing. Parables should not too quickly be turned into allegories. In other words, here's another way to say that. Make sure that you aren't insisting that every element or character in the story has a reference point to somebody else. Okay, where's Jesus in this? Well, Jesus is all over scripture, but I'm telling you, the wealthy landowner person who is giving away talents, and by the way, it's talents, it's not like singing, it's money. That person is not Jesus. That person is not Jesus. The Jesus that you and I have read throughout the book of Matthew, the Jesus that we have talked about and we have heard preached and taught, that Jesus is a friend of the poor. That Jesus just emanates grace. You actually get something that you didn't deserve, which is sort of the definition of grace, as opposed to the outer workings of this parable. Now, there is something here to be learned, and we're going to try to dive through it, but I need to know that you know that the wealthy person here is not Jesus and therefore does not justify your acting like that person. It's super important or else you leave here thinking that God dislikes the poor so I can too. If that's what you leave here with, next week you are going to be confronted in the parable of the sheep and the goats and it will not be pleasant. Please come back next week for the parable of the sheep and the goats. (laughs) No, there's something for us to hear today. This is the second and three parables in a row that that are asking this particular question. What do we do now? What do we do now? 
We, we do this every week. Oh, I hope I've done this right. This is uh, the, the backdrop, let's say, the backdrop of the book of Matthew. This is written after the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. I mean, they, they have this incredible, this is a word we're going to use a lot today, they have this incredible opportunity and this incredible resource. The resurrected Christ is theirs. And by the way, this landowner goes away. Jesus says something different than that in the very last verse of this book. I will be with you always. Again, drawing a distinction between Jesus and this wealthy person who goes away just to see if you can be trusted. This is after the resurrection. That moment, that moment that changes everything. This is after that. When the people of God are now asking different questions, what does it mean to be us now that we are living in the light of the resurrection? And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus has not come back in a tangible, physical, bodily sort of way. So what are we supposed to do because we thought that was going to happen right away? There has been this incredible destruction The temple has been knocked down by this time. The priesthood has been routed, and they're asking this question, okay, what do we do now? What do we now? What do we do now? And this parable tries to answer that question. Next week's parable tries to answer that question. Last week's parable tries to answer that question because at the end of the day, we are still supposed to be actively waiting on the completion of all things. Now, this story, so familiar to us, this story itself has something of a life cycle. Now, you know stories have life cycles, right? I mean, this coming week, many of us will gather around tables, and many of us will tell some of the same stories that we hear every year. But notice, sometimes those stories age. (laughs) Sometimes a detail is dropped, and sometimes another detail takes its place. Sometimes there are points of emphasis last year that aren't emphasized this year, depending on who's around the table and who's telling the story, amen. You will notice some aging, some maturation in the stories that are told around your tables this week. That is not different from some of these stories. We believe, we believe that there is an original story that Jesus told, but Matthew was retelling it and putting the emphasis on a different syllable so as to make a different point. Make some sense? And you can see another iteration of this story, if you want to, in the book of Luke. These stories emerge, and they grow, and they change, and different authors use these different stories for different reasons. Sometime in the future, we won't do it today, we'll look at Luke chapter 19, where the same story is told, but you get a different lesson out of it. Today, here is the lesson. I'm going to give away the end, but you still have to listen to me. And in honor of Stan Toller, I'm preaching a short sermon today. Oh, come on now. (laughs) Here's the end. It's okay to be afraid. But fear can't be your prime motivation for life. It's okay to be afraid. But that fear can't be what animates you first and most deeply. Can't be. Doesn't mean there won't be scary days, dark days. People will die. There will be a diagnosis. There'll be an accident. There'll be the end of a job. 
It doesn't mean that there won't be scary days. Change will happen. It doesn't mean that there won't be very disturbing, frightening sorts of days, but fear, fear can't be our primary motivating, animating force. When it is, something about Christianity dies itself. We are resurrection people. (laughs) Resurrection people. When the worst that humanity could heap onto Jesus was heaped onto Jesus and yet still love and grace and Christ and hope and future overcome all that was heaped on top of Jesus and all God's people said. And there is something there for us that should shape our Sundays and our Mondays and our Tuesdays. But if fear is shaping your Sundays and your Mondays and your Tuesdays, especially as it has to do, especially as it has to do with your faith, then you're not doing it right. Can I tell you something? You don't have to look far out there to see Christians, fearful Christians, making laws and rules because they're afraid of, you fill in the blank, the other who's not like me, the other who doesn't agree with me, the other who doesn't like me. Circumstances. You don't have to look far to find Christians who are animated by fear, and that's what Jesus has drawn a beat on today. Don't be those people. And here's why. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. So, this man goes on a journey. This man, again, not Jesus. But this man, this parable, this man goes away and he gives five talents. This is a lot of money. Again, we're not talking about singing here. Right? We're not talking about America's got talent. We're not talking about Britain's got talent, right? It's not like at the end of this thing, if your talent is juggling, but you just sort of bury it, God's gonna take away your capacity to juggle and give it to the guy who can already sing and dance so that he can sing and dance and juggle. <laughs> See how weird that is? This is not talents. There's a different word that's actually used in this verse. There's a different word for that, ability. This is money, but this is not a stewardship sermon either. And I know, I can feel the temptation to use this as a stewardship sermon, like, hey, if you don't give away your money, God's gonna take what little you got left and give it to the really wealthy person. (laughs) But this isn't a stewardship sermon either. This is a sermon that asks a question. Is fear animating your life? This wealthy person gives a lot of money away, somewhere in the neighborhood of $800,000 per talent. Five talents to one, two talents to another. Another, he gives just one, each according to his ability. That was that word. And then he went away. He goes away. The one who got five talents was not afraid, made the most of this opportunity risked it, risked this grace, you could say, risked this resource, risked in the midst of this opportunity, and sure enough, something happened. It was good. So did the person who had two talents, risked, and something happened that was good. But the person who only had one talent let fear dictate his decisions. And so he did actually what a lot of people did in that day. They actually just buried their treasure now, I would forget where I buried something. I would be a terrible, uh, this kind of money management, right? But this person just buried it. 
dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Why? Because he was afraid. He was afraid. Look in your Bibles. Verse 19. After a long time, the master, not Jesus, I just feel like I need to keep reinforcing that. The master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed me five. See, I made two more. His master said, well, well done, good and trustworthy slave. And the one who had two talents said, Master, you gave me two talents. I made two more. His master said, well done, good and trustworthy slave. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, not Jesus, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. Again, that's not Jesus. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here is what is yours. Okay, I'm not going to keep saying that. I am going to say it one more time. Then I won't say it anymore. This is not Jesus. This is not the God we see reflected in the face of Jesus, which I would submit to you, and so would the Bible, submit to you that that is the most reliable picture of God is the face of Jesus. Make some sense? But this is an unscrupulous, unethical person who seems to glory in the fact, and his reputation demonstrates the fact that he cheats to make money. And this person, this third person is living in fear. Now, let's say this. Let's say this about the wealthy person who went away. Let's say this. He did give the person with five talents and the person with two talents and then finally the person with one talent. He did give them all an opportunity. He did give them all a chance and a resource in order that they might do something something good with this resource and this opportunity. The first two might have had some days where they were afraid to risk, and yet the fear was not the dominant ethic. The third person, given the resource, fear was the dominant ethic. Fear paralyzed this person. Fear kept this person from doing anything. Sure enough, sure enough, his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I cheated, that I reap where I did not snow, sow and gathered where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take that talent from him. It's not Jesus. Oh, I did it again. And give it to the one with ten talents. But for, for to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Because this person, unlike Jesus, cannot stand the poor, the lazy. As for this worthless slave, throw him. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. As for this worthless slave. Ah, shoot. Throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is his sin? What has he done wrong? Here's what he's done wrong. He has squandered a moment. A moment backed with resource. 
an opportunity to do something, he squandered it because of fear. Friends, each of us, and perhaps more importantly, all of us together, gathered up together as OKC first, we have before us a moment, an opportunity. Okay, he's going to start talking about fundraising again. No, I'm not. I'm actually not. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm talking about. The city and the denomination want to know if there's a church like this that exists, that risks questions, that risks opening our doors to the cynical. Oh, man, cynicism. It's a tough thing, right? Some people think it's a spiritual gift. It's not. <laughs> but people have real questions about faith and church and Christians and with good reason. There are a lot of people out there who want to know whether or not a church like this can exist, whether or not faith like this can exist. We have a moment as a church. We have an opportunity as a church. There's a reason we do some of the things that we do, the two windows projects, where we absolutely bring to the forefront the questions, the challenges. There's a reason we do a lot of the things that we do. We are trying to make a dent in our neighborhood. We are taking seriously challenges like literacy, poverty, food security, because there are a lot of people out there who aren't sure that Christians really mean it when they say that the gospel is good news. Listen, if it's just good news for the soul and not the body, I'm not sure it's good news today. There are a lot of people who want to know, many of them poor. There are a lot of people who want to know if a church like this, if a faith like this actually exists. In other words, we have a moment. We have a moment here. Now that's us. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. There are some ways to measure that Christianity has never been less popular. And perhaps is getting less popular. What that means is you have this incredible opportunity to put skin and flesh not on the ugly, wealthy landowner in the parable, but on Jesus. You have this incredible opportunity with your spouse, with your brother, your sister, your children, whoever's going to be around the table this Thanksgiving. You have this incredible opportunity with your neighbors. You have this amazing opportunity with your enemies, your opposites, and your irritants. <laughs> to put skin and flesh on faith so that it's not just a hereafter conversation, but it is wonderfully a here and now conversation. You have this opportunity, hear this, and 
You are resourced by the resurrection. You are resourced by the very life, resurrected life of Christ. In a culture and a context that is often animated by fear, you and I as individuals, yes, as a church, but you and I as individuals, no matter where we find ourselves, we actually have access to this resource that allows us to live animated by something other than fear. That makes you weird. That makes you odd. To be the believer these days who lives in grateful response to the grace that is ours and lives in a way that doesn't allow myself to prioritize myself over the other, to live in ways that are selfless, others-oriented, because I can risk grace having received grace, I'm telling you, that makes you strange, and not just in your business world, but also in your homes. And here's the thing. You have what you need already (laughs) to keep it weird. This resurrected life, this victory of love, this gift of grace, because if you have to earn it, it's not grace, is all yours and meant to be appropriated So that when you go back to work, when you go home, when you enter into another conversation with that person who just drives you crazy, totally fits the irritant category, and you know exactly who I'm talking about, you have all that you need. You have all that you need to put skin and flesh on the hope of the gospel. I'm not saying it won't be scary. I'm not saying it won't be hard. I'm saying don't miss your moment. I'm saying don't squander this opportunity. I'm saying don't neglect your resource. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, an apostle to Christ Jesus by the will of God for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to young Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience. We believe Paul is writing from prison, and we don't believe that Paul thinks he's going to get out of it alive. He says to Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure lives in you for this reason. And Timothy has been intimidated. Perhaps he is frightened. He's been intimidated away from his moment. Paul says to him, for this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Oh, Timothy, I know the days are gonna be hard and your enemies are right there in your face. Do not succumb to fear. Be the grace person in a scary situation. Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him, hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. And that's the point of the parable. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in in us. Because if, if you'll remember, Jesus says, I will not be absent, unlike the person in the parable. I'm with you always. Always. On your scary days, your dark days, when in the presence of your enemies, your opposites and your irritants, Jesus is there to the end of the age. Now, some of you are absolutely <laughs> despondent and disappointed that the guy in the parable is not Jesus. Until you think about it. Man, until you think about it. This is who we need as a Savior. Yeah, I know, John, but... If I'm going to stand up to fear, the fear that exists in me and around me, if I'm going to stand up to that kind of fear, I am going to have to figure out a way to see this Jesus more often. Chew, tell me about it. That's why we do what we do here at this table. This is not just us telling a story to keep alive a memory. This is a story to help tune our eyes and our ears so that we can see the one who is present and hear the one who is present more often. The one who comes with gifts and resources and grace enough to help you to live better than the guy in the parable. Toward the posture of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a terrible question as we move to the table? Who do you aspire to be? The wealthy guy in the parable or Jesus? Because you can't do both. All of those who would be moved toward Christ-likeness are invited to this meal by which the people of God are moved toward Christ-likeness. So if you're helping us, go ahead and come down and help us set this table. Heavenly Father, now bless these elements. Bless these elements, Lord, and with them, strengthen us to be your people and grow us, God, to have just enough muscle, just enough muscle to be able to withstand the constant temptation to fear. May we live as people who can, in fact, receive and then dispense grace. 
But in this moment, God, give us a deep appreciation for what it is that will be pressed into our hands. Give us a deep appreciation for the tangibility of the bread and the cup now. And may we understand ourselves to be built and grown and resourced by it so that we can, in fact, look more, look more like Christ than we did yesterday, last week, last month. If you are visiting us today, thank you for visiting us today. In a moment, uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. And we do it by intention here. And here's what I mean by that. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand and exit your pew to the left. And then to come forward with your hands cupped, your hands cupped to receive that which can't be gotten any other way. You receive this as a gift. That's what grace is. Someone will snap off a piece of bread and place it into your hands when she does or when he does. That person will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Don't eat it just yet, but take it and dip it into the cup. Someone standing right there will be holding a cup. Dip it into that cup. When you do, that person will say to you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then take and eat. And then find a place to pray to appropriate this grace, this energy, to live differently in a frightening world. Now you can come down here and pray at this padded altar, and we have padded altars on the sides. If you come to those padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing, and someone will meet you there and pray that prayer for healing. If you come to one of these mourner's benches, we won't assume a thing, but we will come and pray with you. At some point, somebody will touch you on the head, the neck, the shoulder, just to give you this deep sense that you are not alone because you are not. Or you can circle right back around and pray at your seats. That's just fine. Perhaps you want to make a special trip up here to this bowl of water right now, very still, but maybe you want to come here and dip your fingers in this water to remember the moment of your baptism. That's all this is for, to help jog your memory, to remember that moment when you were initiated into this very odd group of people, postured in odd sorts of ways, kind of like Jesus. If you need that memory to resource you this week, there's something here for you. Who is eligible? Who, who can come to this table? Well, all of you who understand your need for this grace are today and will every time be welcome at this table. No matter what you did yesterday, the day before, if you understand your need for grace, then this is the right place for you to be. If you can't come to us, Jason and Aaron will find you it was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of it, remember me. The same way later he took the cup, he held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant shed for you. And every time you drink it, remember me. God, shape our eyes and our ears that we might see you and hear you where we couldn't see you or hear you before. 
Now all across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, and come forward to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God. As I rise, strength of God, go before, lift me up. As I wake, eyes of God, look upon, be my son. Heavenly Father, we confess that at times we are intimidated by fear, 
confess that there are times when it is fear that animates us. God, grow us. Resource us. Make us aware of the resources that are ours as we live this life in the light of the resurrection. Not, God, that we expect for you to take away every bit, every ounce of our fear and anxiety, but, God, give us strength, stamina to be able to live according to a different law, to live according to grace as opposed to fear. God, make us aware of moments. Make us aware of these moments that we have right now. Each of us, God, as individuals, make us aware of the moments that we have right now as we live and work. Moments that we have with members of our own family, members of the office, people with whom we have regular contact, our enemies, our opposites, and our irritants. And then, God, as a church, remind us of the moment that you have gifted us with now, this moment to make change, to be change. And now God, hear us as we pray for one another. We began our service with moments of silence and prayer for Stan Toller and his family as Stan passed away last night. It's appropriate now to continue to pray again for Stan and his family and the impact of those that he has touched across his years around the world. Thankful for his imprint upon the life of this church. So would you pray for Linda and the boys and all the tollers? I'm praying for my mother-in-law who was his assistant. Pray for those in your own life as Stan has become part of the great cloud of witnesses who's made an impact on our life of faith. to pray for all of those who've lost a family member recently or not so recently and that their Thanksgiving this year will be a little bit different. Would you pray for those as, as much of us look forward to the days that come, some of us know that we're approaching conflict and approaching grief and loss. And so if you will pray for those who for this week may be a difficult one and that may be you as you face a holiday without a loved one. same vein, we pray for those who are forgotten, people across the city who don't have the means to have Thanksgiving, some of our friends who are in assisted living facilities or nursing homes, some of our friends and those who are incarcerated. Lord, we ask that you would be with the forgotten and those on the margins this week. 
Lord, we ask that you would specifically continue to touch Debbie McKenzie and heal her body. Be with Bobby as she walks by her side in this cancer. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless and be with and heal LaDonna Bennett, and you would walk this week with LaDonna and with Larry. Lord, there are so many needs across our church and across the city. And so in this moment of silence, as Mark plays, that need in your life that you entered into the sanctuary this morning that felt overwhelming, would you pray that God would come alongside you in that situation that you brought into the sanctuary this morning in a mighty and powerful and wonderful way? God, we ask that week by week you would transform us as we worship, as we listen, as we respond, as we take Eucharist, and as we say the Lord's Prayer. May we be a people who look like you through the image of your Son by repeating and believing and living into the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. In church this morning, let's pray using debts and debtors. Would you please pray after me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done.